Well, it's good to be connected with the folks outside, so uh, welcome to you all. Good to be with you guys inside and all the folks that are watching online as well. Um, inside, you have these connection cards. If you're new, if you wouldn't mind, fill one of those out and uh, drop it in these little black boxes as you leave online and outside. You can scan the QR code and, and do the same thing, so uh, we're just thankful everybody could be here this morning. Hey, we're going to continue our fall series, and, and it's talking about made for God, identity, gender, and sex. And so we began, or I began, with talking about our identity and how we, as human beings, we are created in the image of God. And if we were to truly understand who we are, we have to know who God is. We can't know who we are unless we really know who God is. And so... Um, what we've discovered is that because of these identity issues, we really um, have a challenge when it comes to matters of sexuality and gender. And a lot of the problems and a lot of the issues surrounding them are spiritual issues. They are discipleship issues. And so that's why we're addressing these in this forum. Now, um, with that, we, we've established some kind of ground rules, some foundational um, understandings. And one is this, that um, we're going to approach this with the Bible as our foundation from a biblical perspective. So we're going to approach this series from a biblical perspective. So the Bible's going to be our authority. The Bible's going to be our standard. And if that's not your standard, then you may or may not arrive at a different conclusion, but that's where we're going to approach it from. So that's the first thing. Secondly, that this is not about politics. This is not about politics. It's about people. It, it, it's about people like you and me, people who are all sexually broken to some degree. It's not about us pointing our fingers at them. It's about us. It's about us. Thirdly, um, we hope to be like Jesus, full of grace and full of truth. Full of grace and full of truth. And we recognize that this is going to generate a lot of conversation, a lot of thoughts and questions. And so we've created a forum on Tuesday nights, 7 p.m. You can come and gather live here in the sanctuary. And we've been doing that, and it's really been fruitful. We've had more and more people every week. And just um, an opportunity to share your thoughts or ask some questions, and we explore those things together. And so I encourage you to, to be a part of that. Now, Sutton, over the last two weeks, has done what I think was a masterful job, a wonderful job of really talking about God's intention behind our gender and our sexuality. Don't you think he's done really great? People are, uh, enjoy the, the, the applause sudden because um, the sudden show is over, all right? <laughs> like I'm back and uh, I, I thought this was going to be a new beginning. And then I saw Sudden just shoved John outside and took over the, the music part of things. And so then I'm getting frustrated because not only can Sudden speak really well in public, but he can sing and he can play the guitar. And like, I'm having identity issues. Like I got, you know, that's why we're doing this series. Honestly, it's for me, you know, because I got problems. So, uh, you know, it's frustrating when somebody seems to have all these gifts and then there's me. So anyhow, um, but what I'm going to try and do is build on what he has, has laid for us last week in particular, this foundation with regard to our sexuality. And um, he made a few points. I'm going to, going to talk about why God created sex to be enjoyed in the context of marriage between a man and a woman. 
So we're going to look at that, but it's important that we look at the four um, fundamental foundational points that he drew from the Bible for us. And here they are. First is, is sex is designed for the purpose of procreation. Sex is designed for the purpose of procreation. God commissioned mankind to go, to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth with his image bearers. So that's the first thing. Secondly, sex is designed for the purpose of this one flesh union, of this one flesh union. God designed two different types of people to come together in a unique and beautiful way to become one flesh. That's the second piece. Thirdly, you are not the point of your sexuality. Did you know that? You are not the point of your sexuality. God is. God is. And because of that, since our sexuality is about God, he determines how we express it. He determines how we express our sexuality. Now, that is not popular in today's day and time, and it never has been. Um, we don't like people telling us what we can and cannot do. We have this natural proclivity to um, kind of rebel against authority, don't we? It just it comes naturally to us. What, what we see is um, when we see restrictions, we see them as, as punitive instead of protective. That's our tendency. We, we see restrictions as punitive instead of protective. And, and we see sex as our right. Sex is our right instead of our responsibility. Instead of our responsibility. Now, I believe the reason for this, it goes back to identity. That we don't truly know God. That we don't truly know God's heart for us. And as a result, we, we've, we've had all these different issues with regard to identity, gender, and sexuality. Now, he, here's my hope. If, if only, if only we will take the time to get to know God, to get to know God's heart for us, then um, we would recognize his love that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, if only, if only we could begin to grasp just, just a little bit how wide, how long, how high, how deep is the love of Christ for us. If only, if only we could somehow believe that when Jesus said, I came to give you life and life to the full, he was telling the truth. If only, if only we could begin to know God more intimately, more personally, then I think we would understand why he created sex within the context of marriage to be between a man and a woman because we would know his heart behind it, if only, if only. Now, um, his purpose is, is to fulfill that commission to fill the earth. It, it's also for the things that we talked about already that Sutton laid out last week. And it's also for our pleasure. But um, it's important that we experience it in his context. And when we have what we call adultery, so adultery is, is sex outside of marriage. Typically, we think of adultery as, as a husband or a wife having sex with somebody other than their spouse. 
But I think Jesus' definition of adultery goes far beyond that. I think his definition of, of adultery extends to any kind of sex outside the context of marriage, any sex. And um, he, here's what we're going to see here. It, it's, it's powerful. If you look at Matthew, so Matthew was there when Jesus was teaching about these things, and he wrote them down. And he wrote in, in Matthew uh, chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, he wrote this as Jesus was speaking. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now notice that Jesus did not say any married man who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He said anyone, anyone. He didn't limit it to just married men. And so I believe he is equating lust with adultery. And I believe this applies to every man. And I also believe you can make the argument it applies to every woman as well. And according to Jesus' high standard, I think we're all, all guilty. Like if you have experienced puberty, I think you are guilty. All right? Like I think you have probably lusted See, lust is to have this, this strong sexual desire for somebody else. And it's not just an attraction, okay? Like we all have attractions, but it's when we take that a step further and we begin to imagine living, playing off of that sexual attraction, and then we fantasize about it. That's really what lust is, and that's why he equates that to adultery, now, um, again, it's important that you understand the, the reason God said this is not good. But we need to look at it in its context and, and see why marriage is meant to be between a man and a woman and the harm, the harm that it can cause us and, and others as well. So here's the first thing um, I want to point out. We are violating the intimate union with our spouse or future spouse. When we commit adultery, or even if we're lusting after somebody and we're, we're having sex with them in our minds, we are violating that union between our spouse or even future spouse. So those of you who are not married, I'm making the case that you are committing adultery against your future spouse. Now, I, I may be unique here, I don't know. But when I think about my wife having sexual desires for somebody else, it tears me up. It tears me up. And we've been married coming up on 34 years. And still, if I allow my mind to go and think of her kissing another person, I, I mean, it just tears me up inside. Or if she did something more with someone in a sexual manner, it tears me up. And I, I'm guessing that I'm probably not the only one here. And so that's why I believe Jesus was saying, look, sex is supposed to be between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. Secondly, we're objectifying a person when we have these sexual desires for them. We're objectifying them. We're, we're making them into something that we want to possess, something that we want to have. They become an object of our desires, and that's wrong. They are people created in the image of God, not somebody to be possessed. And then thirdly, we're, we're using ourselves... Uh, uniting ourselves with, with another physically when we have sex with someone and, and we're uniting ourselves 
mentally when we fantasize about having sex with someone. I would even go so far as to say that there is a spiritual uniting that is taking place in the midst of that, whether that's we're engaging in that, that adultery physically or, or just mentally. I think there's a spiritual uniting that's taking place as well that I don't have time to cover this morning. But here's what I want you to hear. There is no such thing as casual sex. There is no such thing as casual sex because whether you're engaging in that physically or just mentally, you are forever linking yourself together with that person. You are forever linked together with that person. And so there is no such thing as casual sex. Now, this is some hard teaching, right? This is some hard truth. Jesus, like he raised the bar, didn't he? And, and if that's all you heard or all you knew about Jesus, you probably would not want to follow him. Because every time you're around him and every time you would think about what he was teaching, you just feel ashamed. You'd probably feel condemned. But the beautiful thing about Jesus is while he was super high on truth, he was also super high on grace. He was full of truth, but he was also full of grace. And that is a beautiful thing. Now, I'll be honest with you. This is an area I struggle in. So anybody that knows me pretty well knows that I am one of those high truth people. I am high on truth. I mean, I, I will, um, you know, come and, and just talk and, and fight for what is true and what is right and what is just, especially when it seems like nobody else will. And so when you're really high on truth like that, you tend to be low on grace. Right, and that's my problem. Like, I am a black and white guy. I don't know anybody else like me. Like, I just see things as black or white. They're right or they're wrong. I don't see a lot of gray other than these, these pants that I'm wearing and the shoes that I have on. That's about the only gray that I see. You know, there, there's a reason I don't like the clubs. I'm just kidding. I love them, but... So the hair is an issue, right? But I choose to see it as, as black or brown, maybe, not gray. Anyhow, that's an identity issue I'm working on. But anyhow, but the thing is, I just, I tend to be that, that black or white, that high truth or low grace. And, and historically in my life, I felt um, compelled to tell people the truth, to make sure that they hear the truth, that they know the truth, no matter how I may present it or how they may receive it. And, and I figure if they're hurt by that, if they're offended by it, well, you know, they'll get over it. They'll, they'll get over it. And, and I even have believed that one day they're going to come back and they're going to seek me out. And they're going to thank me for caring enough to tell them the truth. Well, do you know how that has worked out? <laughs> Not too well. You know, people can't hear. If you are just all truth and, and no grace, people can't hear that. They can't hear that. Jesus was full of truth, but he was full of grace also. I need more of Jesus and less of me. More of Jesus and less of me. Because listen to how he dealt with the issue of adultery in this woman. It's in John. John chapter 8, he wrote it down, verses 1 through 11. It begins this way, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives 
At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. So imagine, if you will, that Jesus comes in here, and he just sits down to teach. And this place is packed. I mean, not only hundreds, but thousands of people are gathered around Jesus. That was the setting. And then it goes on, verse 3. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law of Moses, he commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down, and he started to write on in the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up, and he said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first one to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down, and he wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the oldest ones first, until only Jesus was left with a woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Where are they? Where are those who condemn you? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Jesus replied, neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. Go and leave your life of sin. It's just a beautiful picture of Jesus being high in, on truth and high on grace and mercy at the same time. See, some of us, we, we struggle. We're high on, on, on truth, right? And we're low on mercy. We, we're like those Pharisees, those religious leaders who, who came in with, with rocks, with stones in hand. They were ready to kill that woman. They're ready to kill her. And sometimes we are the same, and, and we will pick up these rocks of truth, and, and we will throw them at people that have yet to be convinced of the truth of God. And, and if that doesn't convince them, we will pick up another rock, and we will throw it, and, and then we'll pick up another rock. And, and then before we know it, we have destroyed them. We have destroyed them. We've destroyed the relationship that we have. We have no opportunity to share with them the love of Christ because we've been so high on truth and so low on mercy. You know, one of the things that I am impressed by, Jesus recognized that those guys needed grace and mercy as well. You know, the religious leaders who had the stones in hand, and he reminded them of that. And he didn't point to them individually and go, well, you know what? You need to repent of this and you need to repent of that and you are wrong here and you are wrong there. He didn't do any of that, did he? But they were convicted. They were convicted and beginning with the oldest ones who were keenly aware of their own sin, they laid down their stones and they left because they recognized their need for grace. They were high on truth, but desperate for God's grace. Jesus didn't condemn that woman, even though she was caught in the act of adultery. But you know what? 
Some of you guys are, are the opposite of me. You tend to be high on grace and you got no place for the truth because you don't want to hurt somebody's feelings. Right? You are high on grace and low on truth. And you guys stop reading this encounter at that point when Jesus says, I don't condemn you. But he goes on to say, now go and leave that life of sin. Go and leave your life of sin. Again, high on truth, high on grace. You got to have the two. They've got to go hand in hand. Because if you are all about grace and not about truth, well, guess what? That is no good. That is no good. And what you are doing, in essence, is you are leading somebody astray. And here's the thing. You may be actually condemning them. I bet you've not thought about it. But if you do not share the truth with them, you may be condemning them to eternal hell. They need to hear the truth. But it needs to be heard with the grace of God. When Jesus came, he came for that woman. He came for the crowd. He came for those men, and he comes to save you and me. That's the beautiful thing. Now, one of the interesting things I find, I, I was doing a search, and I was trying to figure out who was that woman. We don't, we don't get her name, do we? And, and what happened to her after that encounter with Jesus? And some people have speculated that it was actually Mary Magdalene, that she was that woman. And... Um, we don't have any evidence of that at all. It's just mere speculation. If you know anything about Mary Magdalene, she went on to become one of the closest followers of Jesus there was. And so I don't know who the woman was, but I just get this sense that, that her life was forever changed because of that encounter with Jesus. He, he spoke the truth to her, and, and he showed her incredible grace. And I believe she probably was forever changed because what Jesus was offering her and what he was offering the crowd there was a life, a life that is full, a life that is full of purpose, a life that is full of peace and all of God's goodness. I believe that's what he was offering her. I believe she grasped that. Now, um, I think sex is a beautiful thing. I think God... Uh, was very purposeful when he designed it. He designed it for um, procreation so that we could fill the earth with image bearers of his. I, I believe he, he designed it for our pleasure. I, I believe he designed it with um, his greater purpose in mind and that he designed it to be enjoyed within the context of marriage between a man and a woman. Now, I want to give you an illustration of how I see this playing out. Um, first, I, I want to begin with, with a a picture, really, of a fire in a fireplace. Just take this in. Doesn't that just make you feel warm? It's kind of like a peaceful feeling. It's a comforting feeling when you look at that fireplace burning so brightly. But what happens if that fire escapes the confines of the fireplace?
See, when that beautiful fire escapes the confines of that fireplace, it can go from a thing of beauty to a thing of destruction. It can destroy an entire house. It can destroy all of its contents. It can destroy the very people who live in it. And I think that is the same with sex outside of the confines of marriage between a man and a woman, that when, when it happens outside of that protected area, God's intended purpose for it, the boundaries that he has set, then it can lead to people being burned, marred, and even destroyed. Adultery, adultery can, can destroy those who are participating in it. It can destroy entire families. Adultery can destroy friendships. It can destroy careers. It can destroy your life and everything you hold dear. It has the power to do that. That this, this, this fire that burns within, that could be a beautiful thing, can also become something destructive. Now, here, here's the thing. Do you know what it takes for a fire to go from being a thing of beauty to a thing of destruction? What does it take for a fire to go from a thing of beauty to a thing of destruction? A spark. Just one spark. One spark outside of the confines of that fireplace, if, if not stamped out immediately, given oxygen, allowing it to smolder, allowing it an opportunity to grow, will burn hotter and hotter and hotter and eventually destroy everything around it. And the same is true in our lives with regard to sex. And specifically, it begins with lust. It begins with a spark. You don't just end up having sex with somebody. It begins with a spark. And as you allow that spark to have oxygen, as you give it oxygen and you give it opportunity, it begins to burn hotter and hotter and hotter. And pretty soon it can consume you. It can consume you and lead to your destruction, lead to the destruction of everything that you hold dear. And so that's the picture. That, that's the point here. Why? I believe God designed sex to be within the confines of marriage between a man and a woman. Now, so if that can happen, what are some practical things we can do to prevent that? What are some practical things we can do to prevent adultery in our lives? So the first one is this. We need to extinguish the spark immediately. Extinguish the spark immediately. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and the second half of verse 5 says, Take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So <clears throat> this is how it plays out. Maybe you, you feel attracted to somebody and then you allow that attraction to go into this, this thought life and you begin to fantasize. And, and then what you need to do is as that's beginning to take place, you take that thought and you submit it to Christ. Jesus, is, is this something pure? Is this something holy? Is this something that you approve of? Is this the way you intended for it to be? And he'll bring conviction. He'll bring you know, the, the realization, no, this is not right. And you need to stop it out right then. Don't give it any oxygen. Don't allow it some opportunity to continue to grow, to burn deeper and hotter. Okay, you need to stomp it out. Because here's why. If you listen to James 1.15, he says, Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, 
gives birth to death. So extinguish that spark immediately. Second, create safe boundaries around your sexuality. Create safe boundaries around your sexuality. If you're, you feel your heart begin to quicken when somebody comes into the room that is not your spouse, and you feel kind of this, this tug, this um, longing, if you will, this lust for them, then be on guard. Be on guard. That's dangerous. If you find yourself looking forward to being in their presence, be on guard. It's danger. Danger is lurking. Um, secondly, if you're married, uh, do not go to coffee with um, a member of the opposite sex. Do not go to coffee. Don't go to lunch. Don't go to dinner with just you and them. Or if you have a same-sex attraction, don't go to coffee or, or lunch or dinner with somebody um, that you potentially could be attracted to because here's what happens. We're creating an opportunity for something to happen there. We're putting ourselves in positions where we could falter. First Thessalonians 5.22 says, even abstain from all, appear, from all appearance of evil. Abstain from it. So don't even put yourself in a situation where it may look like something inappropriate is taking place. Then don't engage in private conversations or texts with a member of the opposite sex or, or somebody that may be um, same-sex attracted to you. Um, don't engage in those conversations. We, we in our family, in our, our relationship, and a lot of our friends um, recognize that we, we have friends with um, members of the opposite sex, so there are couples and individuals that we are friends with. But if I'm going to text with that woman, in my case, um, and it's something that's going to become a conversation, I'm going to include Carolyn in that text stream. Or if there's somebody that's married, I'm going to include their spouse in there too. So that it pr provides protection. There's some boundaries there so that we don't accidentally... And not that it would even be accidentally, but you can allow yourself to begin to drift too far and you become too comfortable. And then it can become too intimate and it can cause you to fall in to adultery. And so we want to take precautions. Don't be in these conversations back and forth with a member of the opposite sex or somebody of the same sex that you're attracted to. Include somebody else in that. So a lot of you guys are going to disagree on that. We can talk. All right, um, then your phones, make your phones available. Uh, spouses should have free reign to your phone. You, your spouse should have free reign. Teenagers that are in here that have phones, your parents should have free reign to your phone. If you're not a teenager and you have a phone, your parents should have free reign. Anybody should have free reign to your phone. That there should be nothing on there that you are embarrassed of, that you're ashamed of, that you're trying to keep in the dark, right? Because guess what? Somebody already knows all that information. You know, Siri or whoever it is is always listening. I don't know if you've noticed that. But there's nothing private that you put on your phone. It is all public. It is all public. And so you need to be living in such a way that anybody here could pick up your phone and look at it. No worries. You want to bring things into the light so they don't have power over you. So that's another point. And then I think we need to embrace... The when Harry met Sally rule. The when Harry met Sally rule. Anybody remember that movie, When Harry met Sally? A few of us. Um, and that is a classic. What is wrong with you people? 
Like, if you have not seen When Harry Met Sally, there's some inappropriate points, but it's really good. So you just skip over those parts. But, but there's a great message in there. And so Harry was trying to communicate with Sally that men and women cannot be best friends. Men and women cannot be best friends. Unless you're married, then you should be best friends. But men and women cannot be best friends. You know why? Because when you are so close to somebody and you're sharing at such a deep, intimate level that, that your emotions are connected to one another, guess what happens physically often? You falter. Those that are so close emotionally, it, it is no big deal to become that close physically. So men, women, especially women, women don't seem to get this. Don't trust another man. I know, they're not trustworthy. The, uh, like, if they're your best friend, there's other things going on in their mind, I'm telling you. So anyhow, the when Harry met Sally rule, men and women cannot be best friends unless they're married together. And then finally, um, don't engage in any form of pornography. And we're going to talk about that more in two weeks. Carolyn's going to join me up here, and we're going to discuss that from a male and female perspective. So um, hopefully you'll come back for that. Now, as an aside, this is just one little pet peeve of mine. So I got lots of them. But the, uh, here, here's the thing. For some reason, people outside of the church don't get this. And a lot of you inside the church don't seem to get this. If somebody is separated from their spouse, guess what? They're still married. Just because you are separated, you are still married. And so you should not be encouraging them to meet somebody else. You should not be encouraging them to enter into a relationship with somebody else. And even though I'm not on social media, People show me this stuff, and I see it, and a lot of times it's because it's coming from those high grace people and the low truth people, and they, they want to just encourage somebody because your heart goes out to them. You know they're hurting, but you're encouraging them in the wrong way, and so they show a picture where they're out with somebody, and guess what you do? You like it. You like it, and what you're doing, in essence, is condoning that type of behavior, and you're encouraging them, be an adulterer. Embrace adultery. Don't do that. We need to stop doing that. Be high in grace, but high in truth. Stop liking adultery. Stop encouraging others to engage in it. All right, I'm done with that. So um, hopefully by now I have offended everybody here, right? Like, is there anybody that, like I haven't stepped on your toes? I meant to send out an email, like bring your steel-toed shoes today because I plan on stepping on everybody's toes. But the, uh, in case I didn't, just talk to me afterwards. I'm sure I can find something that will upset you. Um, but that's not really my heart in this. My, here's, here's my heart. That we would understand that God loves us so much that he's the one that created sex. That, that he has a great and beautiful picture for it. He has great intentions. There's a purpose for it. There's pleasure in it. But to fully enjoy it, we have to operate within the context of what he has designed it for. And, and I know every one of us here, we're, we're guilty if you've been through puberty, again, I'm, I'm telling you, we're all guilty of, of adultery, whether it's 
from a lustful point of view or, or you physically acted out. We're all guilty. And so we're not pointing at others. We're just, we're just looking at ourselves. And, and the bottom line is we need Jesus, right? Just like, like those Pharisees who on the outside, they look like they had it all together. Yo, I've never committed adultery. Well, have you ever thought about it? Yeah. Guess I need to drop my stone, right? Because if I don't drop it, someone else is going to pick one up and toss it at me. We need God's grace. And here, here's the reality. So we're all guilty, but I would imagine most of us have probably suffered at the hands of somebody else sexually. Women, more so than men, but lots of men have been abused in some kind of sexual way. And we are in desperate need of healing. And the best place, I would argue the only place to find that is in Jesus Christ. And we need to go to him. We need to go to him. Because he came for that woman who must have been just shaking in fear and shame as she stood before Jesus, the teacher, as she stood before hundreds if not thousands of other people in her shame. Jesus says, I came to save you. I didn't come to condemn you. I came to save you. And the guys with the rocks, he came to save them. The crowd, he came to save them. You and me, he came to save us. We are in desperate need of Jesus and his healing. And we need his power, the power of the Holy Spirit that he gives us when we surrender our lives to him, the power that will enable us to live sexual lives that are holy and pleasing to him. We can't do it on our own, but we can do it with him. So come to Jesus this morning. Come to him with your brokenness. Come to him with your confession. Come to him with your struggles, but come to him. Seek his grace and seek his truth. We're going to have people that are up front here um, in just a, a few seconds. Uh, we're going to have people outside that you can go pray with. Um, online, if you would like to engage, just type in prayer at orchardhillschurch.org, and um, our prayer ministers will respond to you as well. But God says, come, come. Seek Jesus' grace and seek his truth. Let's pray. <sighs> Jesus, thanks so much that you are full of truth, yet full of grace. And, and may we each become more and more like you. May we surrender ourselves to you, knowing that your ways are so much better, that you are a good, good God, and you've designed sex in, in a good and a purposeful way, not just for our enjoyment, for, but for your purposes. Lord, bring your healing. And um, Lord, just encourage us this day. In Jesus' name, amen.